This album is dedicated to all brothers and sisters. My men and my women. And yo, it's time. Put our hands together for hip hop, hip hop. Cause who I'm talking about, y'all, is hip hop. The stories of hip hop, of rap music, are the stories of a million MCs who inside of them the words are coming, the words they need to make sense of the world around them. The words are witty and blunt, abstract and linear, sober and fucked up. And when we decode that torrent of words, by which I mean really listen to them with our minds and our hearts open, we can understand their world better, and ours too. It's the same world. This is Rhymes and Reasons. My name is Nate Matthews. I live here in Chicago. I'm a PhD student in African history at Northwestern University. I have lived all over the U.S. and a little bit abroad. My specialty is East African history. Originally sort of from downstate Illinois, southern east central Illinois. And I am here to talk about my three favorite slash most influential hip-hop songs. Songs that had a, an influence on me as a person and the way that I thought, the way that I developed my conscious thought, my, my ideology, my understanding of history, or songs that really just captured me when I first heard them and captured how I might have been thinking and feeling at a particular time. And lastly, I think also songs that opened up for me new possibilities of what music could be and I think in particular the last cut just showed me that I didn't understand yet how global hip-hop really could be wake up take the pillow from your head and put a book in it it's time for the massive BDP crew at the top of the So the three songs uh, that we're going to talk about are um, KRS-One, Black Man's in Effect, from the Edutainment album. So check the Black Man's in Effect. G-O-D, or Gaining One's Definition, by uh, Common with CeeLo. And the last is a song by Tanzanian artist Professor J called Zali Zamentali, which roughly translates in Swahili to good luck mentality. I mean, I grew up in a, in a, Champaign is a relatively small town, college town. And hip-hop was, of course, like part of the soundtrack that I grew up with. Cats were getting into DJing. I myself was kind of into lyric writing and poetry and this sort of thing. For one reason or another, I wasn't sort of one of those people that you would have, that you would associate with like listening to hip-hop all the time. And that was part of the background that I came from. My parents really actually didn't, didn't permit us to really buy and own secular music, least of all hip-hop. So I was sort of sneaking around listening to stuff, but I didn't, you know, I really wasn't in tune with basically the mainstream currents of what was what was popular at the time. And I guess for me, it, 
it didn't really interest me. A lot of a lot of the stuff that would get played and get a lot of a lot of airplay, it just didn't seem like it was particularly relevant to my to anything. But when I heard KRS One for the first time, I got a tape of his, and it was one side was his self-titled album, and the other side was Return of the Boom Bap. Boom Bap original rap. And that's when I thought to myself, oh okay. I need to find out more about this artist. There's something very compelling about what he's saying. can remember edutainment having a really really big impact on the way that I thought in terms of actually forcing me to go back and say well how does he know that like why is he saying that and then reading and studying about it so when he's he talks about I forget what day to use something something to something something BC originates Greek philosophy Greek philosophy, but in that era, Greece was at war with themselves and Persia once more. Any philosopher at that time was a criminal. He'd be killed very simple. This indicates that Greece had no respect for science or intellect. So how the hell you create a philosophy when you kill philosophers constantly? I was like, oh, okay. He's really launching a full-scale assault on the sort of white Western imagined tradition linking itself back to the supposed origins of, of Greek philosophy and really, I mean, deeply critiquing that whole narrative while at the same time saying, look, there's this other narrative that's been covered over. So there, there's, this, there's this historical consciousness that's running through the whole song. And the other, the other piece that really stood out to me is at the end he says, once they realize that both are African, white will sit down with black and laugh again. And I think for me, who somebody who's really tried to look at the racial history and racial politics of, of the United States of America, and you really can't do U.S. history without looking at that, this was a very interesting formulation of a kind of humanism. And I sort of learned the context of this later, which is that there was a sort of beef between X-Clan and KRS about their respective ideologies because at this time X-Clan was coming out with lyrics and uh, songs that were really, really strongly black nationalists. So I think what Chris was trying to do was saying was saying that yeah, one can be black nationalist but still be a sort of humanist, I guess. 
And so for me, I mean, that, that made a big impact on my thinking. Here is a way to move away from a collective representations of, of whiteness to move away from that sort of a logic and that identification and not to just reject it but actually to, to positively affirm something else not to merely negate whiteness uh, as a sort of critique but to say actually here we have here's a common ground or basis for organizing or working together or, or uh, just a sort of collective life You know, now I look back on it and it's, you know, that, that formulation is also, you could say it's, it's kind of vague, you know, because, well, how is folks realizing that they're African really going to change immediate everyday political realities? But for me at the time when I was thinking, which, is, which would have been in my early 20s, having just sort of entered college at that time, it made a really big impact on how I thought. That's the sound of the police. The albums that I heard were, were really his, you know, his first forays that were not under the name BDP, and so they were they they had that hardcore political element of BDP, but they were his first sort of solo albums under his own name. As far as edutainment goes, see, I, my, my genealogy actually went backwards in time, even though I got older. Like, I started listening to stuff that he had come out with earlier. And he has strong critiques of organized Christianity and, and of, the, of the Pope and this sort of thing. I think in Black Man's In Effect, he says, I'm not a Muslim, but I don't diss him. I'm not a Jew. I don't practice Judaism. I'm not a Buddha, but Buddha's a master. I don't eat beef, pork, or diet Shasta. I'm a Muslim, but I do support them. My father in heaven taught me and taught them. I'm not a Christian, but I won't diss them. I'm not a Jew. I don't practice Judaism. I'm not a Buddhist, but Buddha's a master. I don't eat beef, pork, or diet Shasta. So he's articulating a religious, a kind of a spiritual outlook that is post-Christianity, post-Buddhism, post-Islam. Like, it's moving, trying to move to some essence of spiritual teaching. So that was, yeah, that was, that was powerful for me. But he interested me in a kind of way of being spiritual without being religious. I think that was the big, the biggest thing that I can say that he did. And, I mean, insofar as Afrocentricity or Africa is a part of that, I think it's a part of kind of worldview or metaphysic of seeing the universe as having some sort of, as being kind of alive and, and having some sort of consciousness itself that one can tap into. And so, I mean, you, I guess you could say that that was one of the things that sparked my curiosity to take what I had grown up with and even though at that point I I had sort of rejected it and would continue to try to find my way outside of it, I also wanted to take what I had grown up with and contrast it to other traditions. And KRS was saying, like, that's what I'm on, you know? I'm trying I'm I'm on this project of self education and so I'm reading all the books, all the great books. You know, that's that's one thing that uh 
that I felt I had to do at some point. Like, oh, okay, I need to read the Bhagavad Gita. I need to read the Vedas. I need to read the Quran. I need to reread the Bible and sort of compare and contrast these different strands in order to get out of these sort of Christian-centric doctrinal story that I had been socialized into. Yeah, so this song, man, it takes it takes me back. I was sitting, I think it was Thanksgiving, maybe after my freshman year in college, and was sitting in my friend's car in Philly, and he goes, oh, man, you, we were talking about religion and philosophy and things. He said, oh, you have to hear this song, man. So he played it for me, and uh, then I subsequently went home and like listened to it like a thousand times. One, it's just a beautiful song, right? It's just the piano and it's got kind of a live vibe to it just very laid back and two i think that that whole part where common says given religion with no reason why it, it i mean it brought me back to my own experience and just like trying to claw your way to some type of understanding and some type of transcendence from what you were given as a kid in terms of the dogma that's put on you and adults who actually may not know themselves but just believe that you should believe something so it i guess it it had a strong resonance with me as a child given religion with no answer to why just told believe in jesus because for me he did die curiosity kill the catechism understanding and wisdom became the rhythm that i played to and became a slave to master self a rich man is one with knowledge happiness and his health my mind had dealt with the books as in tale the lessons Quran and the Bible, to me they all vital and got truth within them. Gotta read them, boys. You just can't skim them, different branches of belief. But one with that stem them. But people love the venom, try to trim them. And use religion as an emblem when it should be a natural way of life. Who am I or they to say? And the fact that the song is called Gaining One's Definition. So it's playing on this, this metaphor of the ways in which God is deployed, whether someone is looking to a supreme being as as common as talking about well you know that supreme being is universal across religions or in in Silo's case he's saying like okay well it's fine if you want to call yourself god uh, so he's actually sort of but he's pushing back at the the kind of 5% view that the the black man is god and saying look okay we'll prove it you know in how you live and in the way that your actions are and so Getting back to the the idea of of gaining one's definition, both of these verses are so strongly about somebody searching through all the ignorance, through study, through like discrimination between knowledge and ignorance, and finding something precious and like holding on to that, and using that as really like the central aspect of your identity and the way that you are in the world. 
So it's it's really powerful message. No, no, just a minute. Let's just calm down. For Christ's sake, let's just take it easy. Take it easy. Where you cough needles and taking it easy. Take it easy. Take it easy. I uh, I went back and listened to all of Common's albums after I think after uh, one day it all makes sense. You know what? Be yourself and just take it easy. You know what I'm saying? Easy, easy, easy like Sunday morning. I can just simply nervous jump when I'm yawning. Ah, Common is coming in with the oh excuse me Elizabeth. This is a big one. I mean a do it do it do it. Bouncer, is he like bouncer? Kicking it with the shine on on the t-shirt and the trousers. How's the family ties? I'm blessed with the gift. Open it up. Surprise! Big Mac, filet of fish, quarter pound of french fries, icy coat, big shake, Sundays in apple pies, and a cup? Nah, that's enough of that. I'm like an Indian giver. Yo, Yo give me that back. Come and get pop, 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 big Mac selector. <laughs> He's really undergone a, an amazing transformation as a as a lyricist, from sort of doing this this double time, triple time, DOS effect style flow to really finding himself as a lyricist he hasn't really changed up that style which is kind of this jazzy this jazzy flow and and a lot of the themes that that he he continues to sort of work on which is like religion consciousness your relationship to god larger issues of how do you become whole and then how do you translate that individual wholeness into communal wholeness I mean, I think his work does uh, definitely does stand out as having certain overriding themes. As far as CeeLo goes, I, I would have to take it back to, you know, actually hearing or, or sort of being exposed to Goody Mob when I, when I moved to Atlanta, like finding out about their music. And CeeLo for me was like the voice of, uh, that really stood out in that group. Cause he was on some other stuff, man. I mean, he, you know, you listen to uh, Soul Food, and it's just an incredible, incredible album. But CeeLo is always talking about some different stuff. Like he's always trying to kind of elevate it and take it to the next level. So even when he's political, he's framing these questions and and he's talking talking about things in terms of larger spiritual themes, in terms of like the destiny of of black people the destiny of humankind what is god's will and the and these sorts of things and he's doing it in a way that's just really really beautiful singing and and rapping so many of my fellow brothers have given themselves a title that their actions didn't earn our ignorance is in the same breath our innocence subconsciously seeking to find an impressionable mind to convince i finally come to the realization why black people are in the worst place because it's hard to correct yourself when you don't know who you are in the first place so I try to find a clue in you, but evidently white folk know more black history than we do. Why are we being lied to? I ain't know our history was purposely hidden. Damn, something in me want to know who I am. So I began my search. My journey started in church. It gave my heartache relief when I started to understand belief. Hustling was like a gift. Spent my share time on the streets. Taught me survival from this evil I'm just going to have to deal with. And I felt like a fool when I tried to learn in school. It almost seemed like rehearsal when the only science of math is universal. Taking elder advice, read the Bible, the Quran, search scrolls from the Hebrew Israelite. Hold on, this ain't right. He's one white. You listen to CeeLo from his earlier albums, and he's evolving as a person in his relationship. I mean, and, and he's really speaking quite honestly about that. You know, when he talks about, you know, I used to sort of think that, and I was taught that the 
the god is black and the devil is white and he's like no no i'm actually like that's only part of the equation i'm moving beyond that which you see i mean if you go back in his earlier work those themes actually do come out much stronger and here he's trying to wrestle with them and i think i mean that explains why a lot of these religious paths were so attractive to to people at particular times despite some of their other more bizarre views they were really trying to take a new approach and take folk who might have been socialized in a particular way in the christian church or what have you and give them some new knowledge so i think a lot of hip-hoppers went you know might have gone through various phases where they were they were part of this religious group or part of that religious group but at the same time you still see in that song they're they're struggling with the limitations of that of some of those philosophies and and saying actually no philosophy can or no religion can have a monopoly or a boundary on what the truth is and so we can in fact we just need to burst through all of them and acknowledge just some fundamental truths about the about our human situation The impact that it had on me was confirming where I was at, that other people had been to that same place. So confirming the, the authenticity of my own experience and encouraging me to continue to explore the dimensions of other religions, particularly religions that are sisters of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. I mean, I don't think it led to any deep revelations, but it's one of those things where it, it sort of pushes you in a direction that you were, or pushes you further in a direction you were already going. Nigga, you need to get up, get out, and get something. Don't let the days of your life pass by. You need to get up, get out, and get something. Don't spend all your time trying to get high. You need to get up, get out, and get something. How will you make it if you never even try? You need to get up, get out, and get something. Cause you and I got to do for you and I. I don't recall ever graduating at all. Sometimes I feel I'm just a disappointment to y'all. So when I was 18, I basically left home. I moved to the south. I moved to the rural south. I worked for two years for Habitat for Humanity in the rural Mississippi Delta, which is one of the, was one of, I think it still is one of the poorest places in, in the United States. So it was coming face to face with that. And I've always been somebody who just reads voraciously. So while I was down there, I, w I was reading a lot of the history. And I think the experience of reading along with sort of day-to-day -day engagement in, in social action and talking to a lot of people and being young and impressionable, I, it really did it radicalize me in some significant ways in terms of my politics, in terms of my approach to, I guess you could say, the founding myth of, 
America being the land of the free and, and the home of the brave. And realizing that I needed to do a lot more research into American history, but that there were some significant groups of people who from the beginning, you know, the deck had been stacked against them, basically had been marginalized, had really actually never been given opportunity that America prides itself on giving everyone. So there there was these inconsistencies. And from there, I moved on to Atlanta. I was at the time really interested in pursuing an ideal of living in community, living in some kind of intentional community. And so I was looking for places that fit with my communal ideals, but also fit with my political and social ideals. And I did a lot of research, visited a few places. One of the places that the place that I ended up going was the Open Door community in Atlanta, Georgia, which was modeled on the Catholic Worker House, you know, something that's founded by this this radical Catholic anarchist in the 1930s to try to really live out what the meaning of the gospel. It was liberation theology before there was a name for it. I so I jumped at the chance. And the the other thing about the Open Door was they also had a focus on on race and racial justice. That was a big focus of mine at the time. So I went there, I was there for a year, really enjoyed it, learned learned a lot, spent a year just really immersing myself in all types of different literature about theology, liberation theology, more on American history. I mean, the history of Atlanta itself is, is a just a fascinating, fascinating history in terms of race and racial politics and intersecting with some of the major themes in American history. I mean, obviously, uh, Martin Luther King uh, being from there, the emergence of the black middle class and its relationship to the old order in Atlanta, some of the early attempts at public housing were in Atlanta. And Atlanta, I guess, even before Barack Obama, you know, it had been painting itself as the new South and this sort of post-racial space where, you know, there were all these new possibilities for collaboration. And I, and one of the things that The Open Door was big on doing and saying was that, in fact, that's not the case. I mean, really poor people and black people are disproportionately affected by policies in the city and in the state and still disproportionately uh, sort of discriminated against in terms of who's in the prison system, who gets opportunities and this sort of thing. And that this feel-good collaboration between the black and white elites in Atlanta shouldn't take our attention away from that fundamental reality, which is, again, that's a liberation theology type of thing, like preferential option for the poor. School spirit up for the mud. Alpha step, omega step, kappa step, sigma step. Gangsters walk, pimps gon' talk. Ooh, heck you know that boy is raw. AKA step, delta step, SGO step, zeta step. Gangsters walk, pimps gon' talk. Ooh, heck you know that boy is raw. I'm again on this TV. So yeah, from there I I went I went to Lincoln University. It was my freshman year in college. I was like 21. I was I finally decided I needed to go to school. And when I did, I, I decided that my choices about where I went to university had to be informed by all the political developments and who I was the previous three years. And so I chose Lincoln. Well, partly it was some personal reasons why I chose it, but it was a conscious decision to sort of go to an HBCU. And there's a complicated logic behind that, which sometimes people don't quite understand, which is that I sort of reasoned that 
this ideal of integration was was a great idea but that had never been seriously pursued in that whenever advocates for integration spoke up it was always about black folk having to go into white spaces and be the odd person out and it was never the other way around so that the underlying cultural values of the situation never really got destabilized or questioned or called into question and so for me I, I felt I had to address that in how I moved through the world and I guess going to an HBCU in general was, was my sort of attempt to address that. Yeah, and so I, I ended up transferring, ended up transferring to Howard, and then and then finished my my college career there. It was something that was still something that I that I try to think through consciously, but I think initially it was something that was very much a preoccupation of mine, and part of the reason why I think KRS spoke to to me in some way is like, okay, this is where. You, you know, you can fit in. In other words, once you once you get a, a level of consciousness about what it means to be white in this country and, and the symbols that are associated with that, you can sort of fall into a kind of just straight negation. Well, there's, there's several routes. You can fall into just a straight negation, but I think that's a dead end. I mean, where do you sort of go in terms of a positive political project and, and identification? you can sort of fall into this kumbaya type of attitude of, you know, let's just all get along, which I think just reinforces the whole the white privilege and this sort of thing. Or you can try to just live that every day, that kind of radical tension. And I don't think that there's a there's an immediate a solution for it other than just day-to-day attentiveness to it and in terms of at the level of your everyday consciousness and staying aware in, in, in of the ways in which, I mean, privilege is just a part of being, you know, living and being white in America. You get certain privileges unearned, unasked for. Any white boy who thinks he knows my struggle cause he listens to Pac and his adrenaline doubles. Now I ain't got problems with you being yourself, but when you front and use the N-word, it just don't help. I might not trip and your friends will laugh at you, but I know some real niggas that'll straight up but ultimately I think you know I, I don't think that actually hip-hop anymore you could you could call it like a black cultural thing it is that but it's certainly not only that it's so global at this point so many people have sort of bought into it and and I don't want it I don't want people to hear that as saying like it, it's not that it is that and then some I guess I would say you know, that will always be a part of its history and that will always be something essential for people to acknowledge in order to be a part of the culture. But, I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's blown up. It's gone, it's gone so far beyond that. Though I think there are some important takeaways, though, which is like hip-hop provides, and this is what the sociologists will tell you, you know, hip-hop provides these spaces of cultural overlap and cultural interaction across the boundaries of segregation. And that's true to some extent, but unless that transfers into real everyday interaction, it will become sort of a parody, kind of like a hokey 
2011 version of of kumbaya like oh it will okay so you both listen to tupac and biggie like what what does that actually mean at the end of the day so unless hip-hop forces you to look at yourself and and really interrogate that privilege then you know i think it can just it can just be something that people listen to unreflectively insofar as white people listening to hip-hop can reflect on themselves and their position and and sort of remove the invisibility about whiteness i think you know i think there's a lot of potential there took so long to take place was up until now your only choice was third base for others like ice wasn't really that tight now you got some white dudes who can truly rock the mic you relate to their stories because you share that past question is why would you listen to mercer's black i asked myself for a while but now i finally get it good music transcends all physical limits it's more than something that you hear it's something that you feel when the author and experience and passion is real I mean, hip-hop comes down to skills. I mean, like, can you come into these spaces and just rock it? And that that's the ultimate test, you know? And if you can't do that, no amount of faking it is going gonna, is gonna to cover that up. You know, you can't just deploy some say yo enough and, and get a sort of get acceptance. It's not like a magical uh, thing. And interestingly enough, I mean, the two people that sort of come to my mind are Eminem and Everlast. And Eminem, somebody who's very conscious of his privilege, uh, sort of almost embraces it in a weird way. And Everlast is Muslim, which I think actually is another, for a lot of white people, I guess including myself uh, to some degree, um, because I'm Muslim, being Muslim was like a way to, and Everlast, I think, touches on this, was like a way to reject whiteness and reject the, the things that come with that identity. Uh, basically, this, yeah, the song is called Zali Zamentali. Uh, it's by an artist called Professor J. Basically, when I, in 2006, I had the opportunity to go to Tanzania, and I was already interested in hip-hop, and I knew, I was aware that there were hip-hop scenes in Africa, and so when I went, I was really curious to find music and artists, hip-hop artists, in Tanzania. And I was not disappointed. Professor J was one of the first artists that people said, oh, you need to hear him. And he had just come out with a new album at that time, which has some of his other more recent hits. This song I actually didn't hear till a little bit later when I was searching around for more of his music. And I got intrigued by it. And I, I went and tried to sort of translate the lyrics because Swahili is you know, I learned it in, in college, took it for years, and so I wanted to try to see if I could decipher the song. And it's, yeah, I mean, it was very difficult because the song is very idiomatic, but I was able to find somebody who had actually transcribed it into Swahili, which helped a lot. <laughs> So, the sense of the song, the basic narrative of the song is this poor guy in Tanzania who is sleeping with his hand cart. He sleeps, you know, lives a kind of hand-to-mouth existence. 
he works really hard and doesn't get paid hardly anything. His he takes his joys basically from hanging out with his his other friends who are also in the same situation. One day, this car pulls up and asks him to do you know to guard the car or something, and gives him like a ten thousand shilling note. And the girl in the car apparently is quite smitten with him, and he's just mesmerized by her. She you know gives him a kiss and then drives off few days later they meet again and there's this big scene where she's confessing his love we're not quite sure where this is coming from like why is she so all of a sudden in love with him it's kind of like love at first sight but she's from a rich family and so because of this association with her and because of his ability to kind of be in the right place at the right time and mesmerize her he eventually marries her and they become rich and successful no word on whether or not he actually you know was like working somewhere else or anything but basically it's just it's like i won i won the lottery for <laughs> for getting married you know for having a comfortable life and i really think of it as a kind of post liberalization fantasy if you will and so what I think he's trying to do, I mean, he's being very lyrical. It's just really, really uh, a brilliant, brilliant song in terms of the rhyme structure. And, and it's really innovative. But he's also giving voice, I think, to a kind of collective, maybe a, a fantasy of someone who's in that position. And so it's like really trying to articulate their voice. The name of the song is Good Luck Mentality. So it's a... It's, it's really, it's about having this positive outlook and all the incredible things that it leads to in this particular situation. And I think we can frame it in terms of, in terms of the politics of it. There's a book called East African Hip Hop by uh, my colleague Mwenda Antarangui, who's a Kenyan scholar who teaches here in the U.S. And the book is, is really about how the development of East African hip hop in Tanzania and Kenya and the development of Swahili lyricists, what they were in turn listening to. Now, Professor Jay used to be part of a group called Hard Blasters. And Hard Blasters, one of the first songs that they recorded was a song, I forget what it's called, but it samples Under Pressure, which was, of course, also sampled by Vanilla Ice <laughs> in Ice Ice Baby. And there's, they're also sampling, uh, they also sampled in another song, they sample Sexual Healing. Marvin Gaye and the context for all that is in the especially in the in beginning in the early 90s Tanzania really began to open its economy up in terms of liberalization of the private sector less state control over imports and exports which means more access to western media which means that the youth in that time you know could listen to and have access to through these you know, these diffuse global media networks to a lot of the things that folks in the U.S. were listening to. So this leads to the development of a whole hip-hop scene in East Africa, in, in Tanzania, of which Professor Jay, I think, is really the foremost lyricist, the foremost example of the creative possibilities of hip-hop in East Africa. Some of his other songs are more, I guess, pointed political critiques of uh, politicians 
He has a song which Professor Ntarangui talks about in which he's asking for people's votes, in which he's playing a politician asking for people's votes. And he says, you know, I will give every policeman, you know, I'll give all the, all the public employees raises. And, you know, this is like everybody, all the policemen will have a helicopter and will have houses on the moon and just, just these grandiose promises. And then he, he does a follow-up song in which he, it's the same politician answering to his constituency now that he's been elected and saying, why do you have these unrealistic expectations for what I can accomplish? It's very cold on the moon, and I think, anyway, Osama bin Laden has his camps up there, so we can't, <laughs> we can't build. Uh, there's no money for It's ridiculous to expect everyone to have a helicopter. You know, it's, uh, it's all this stuff. But I'll try to work on these things if you elect me to another term. <laughs> so... Professor Jay, I think, is really at the forefront for giving voice to, uh, like, like a, a, a subaltern voice and a, and a really conscious voice for people who have whose lives have been significantly impacted by sort of neoliberal structural adjustments programs in Africa, and also someone who is using the language in really, really innovative and, and amazing ways. Of course, you know, classical Kiswahili is a literary language as well as a spoken language with a very long history. Mostly, you know, it's really been associated with the Swahili coast in terms of its classical forms. But the, the kind of thing that's going on in, in hip-hop in Tanzania, they're taking the language and just using it and twisting it in different ways, bringing in some English influences from English, English inflections. And, and Professor Jay is really at the forefront of that. Who's picking up the torch of some of these folk of of, of CeeLo and Common and, and KRS-One? I think one of the strongest and most amazing voices to come out in the past few years that has that really draws together all the threads of this interview is Kanon. I mean, here's somebody who learned English in order to rap somebody who's very rooted in a particular locality, Somalia, but is nevertheless part of the diaspora and really was exposed to hip-hop culture in, in the U.S. and Canada. Someone who speaks to a lot of Pan-African themes. His music is very, very political, very, I think, very spiritual as well. Uh, he, he has done, he did a song with Most Deaf that's essentially a kind of a prayer to Allah. So I'm anxious to see what he'll do next. And now he has his kind of superstar status because of waving flag in the World Cup. So I really think that that's somebody that I that I really you know I'm looking to and excited about whatever he comes out with next. In terms of what I'm doing now. I have an organization along with some other uh, folks at Northwestern called A Shy Cipher, which is the Chicago Hip Hop Interdisciplinary Cipher. And essentially what that is, it's through the, the program of African Studies. It's a, it's a platform to talk about hip hop in a global context, particularly hip hop in Africa and, and making the links between hip hop in Africa and hip hop in the diaspora. And that's one of the things our working group is working on, culminating in an event 
at Columbia College here in Chicago, which is essentially a Chicago hip-hop teaching, which will have a global focus. So we'll have panels on hip-hop in Africa. We'll have a panel on educators who are using, uh, using hip-hop to talk about what's going on in the world. All these revolutions in Africa have produced a whole myriad of uh, responses from from hip-hop artists, Libya, Egypt, Tunisia, and so forth. And so we want to bring some of that out as well. And, you know, I, I really, I mean, hip-hop is a, is, a, is a global idiom of youth culture. And so it's, it's, the, it's the voice, it's the means by which youth are using to express themselves. So I, I really want to try to be on the forefront and listening to what they're saying, you know and the ways in which globalization is creating these interesting possibilities for creating community, communities of solidarity through global hip-hop. So that's some of the themes that the conference will be talking about. But we'll also be, you know, speaking of producing locality, we'll, we'll be rooting it in a very local context. Most of the artists and most of the people who will be part of the teaching will be Chicago-based. We want to look at Chicago as, you know, one node in this global transnational imaginary of a hip-hop culture connected to all these other places around the globe. I think this is something that is universal or, or nearly universal about the way hip-hop, in terms of its musical expressions, travels, in that it tends to give voice to the voiceless. It tends to be a place where folks, especially young people who have no other stake in the public sphere or have no other voice in the public sphere, can articulate that voice. And I think that it's played that role in East Africa. You see it playing that role around the world, actually, in France, in Germany, in Senegal, I mean, even China just all over the world that seems to be when, when folks are coming out with with music and either rapping in their own language or even mastering English so they can so they can rap in that language I myself am, am really interested to see where this is going I mean Chuck D recently said that you know MCs in in Africa and even around the globe are better lyricists and are doing more and are doing more innovative things than than artists and and lyricists in the u.s you know i think it was something that he said to be provocative to hopefully inspire maybe some soul searching on the part of folks but in many ways that's true and i, I don't think that we're rapidly moving to a place where although the u.s will always be sort of looked at as you know the 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 home and the incubator of this of this culture and this uh, this art form it's not necessarily the place where the most interesting things in terms of new frontiers of innovation and artistry are happening and that's amazing so some of the things that are going on in africa right now and are just really incredible and, and i you know I, we don't know what the what the future will hold for that uh -huh.